Hi, I'm Rachel Monteleone and welcome to Kittypedia, the podcast. I'm not an expert. However, I do speak with them with the view of providing you with expert information and advice to help you be the best parent that you can be. Together, let's give children the life they deserve and a positive future. Hello and welcome. While our earliest experiences in childhood form the foundation of who we become in adulthood, you know, did you know that 90% of a child's brain develops by the age of five? Now, during this time, a child's neural pathways are formed based on their everyday experiences and what they're exposed to. And once these brain connections are formed, they last a lifetime. Now, for this reason, we really need to protect our children's vulnerability and preserve their true authentic self. Reassess the environment our children are growing up within and reduce any exposure to stress and trauma. You know, the most common affliction for mental, chronic illness, physical disease and abusive behaviours is trauma experienced in childhood. The average childhood experience that has developed into abusive behaviours are are a result of adverse experiences at home as generational trauma is passed down from one generation to another. It's exposure to unbearable circumstances at at home with things, for example, like raised voices, you know, parents possibly swearing or insulting them or swearing at each other or putting the child down, aggressive behaviours of throwing things at them, um, potentially even hitting or injuring them, even as simple as feeling unloved and that uh, the child feels that no one in their family is that safe person for them. It doesn't have to be this way. And we need to put a stop to this endless cycle of generational trauma that fosters behaviours later on in life, such as domestic violence. So to help talk to us about this today and to help us put an end to this, we welcome our very special guest and an absolutely beautiful human being, Kari Sutton. Now, Kari is an expert in fostering children's positive mental health. Kari has helped over 25,000 children, parents and educators with evidence-based strategies, tools and approaches, as well as common sense tips that help children stop worrying so much and to help manage their anxiety. And her expertise has made her an in-demand conference speaker, author and consultant in wanting to foster children's positive mental health. And don't we need that right now? Now, she's, has, she has launched her second book, which I have behind me here, Raising a Mentally Fit Generation. <clears throat> Sorry for coughing. Welcome back, Kari. How are you? I'm well, Rach. How are you? Yes, I'm, I'm really um, excited uh, and at the same time disappointed to even have this conversation based on this topic, but to, to be able to sort of go there with you today is something that is, um, <clears throat> I think, is really needed and it's not discussed enough at all. And, you know, I really believe that each child has the opportunity for enormous transcendence. You know, it's really up to us to provide the environment for children to thrive in. But on the flip side, when they're continually exposed to, I guess, abnormal situations and abusive behaviours, they, they of course, deal and experience trauma. So I just wanted to, to ask you initially, do you think that suppressed trauma from childhood can foster abusive behaviours later on in life, which in turn inflicts suffering on others? Short answer, yes. 
is that what what children see and experience in those critical early childhood years from zero to and even as you said it's possibly intergenerational trauma so and this is not to lay a guilt trip at parents feet at all it's just to say we actually have to take care of our pregnant mums because even in utero, the baby is picking up on mum's stress level, on the cortisol and adrenaline and things like that. And that can actually pre-program the fetus and the unborn child to have more of those in their body. So there's a whole range of things that we're finding out now. But once the baby is born, once our precious little baby comes into the world, then for the next three, five, eight years, as you said before, the foundation of their neural wiring is laid in that time. So that's the critical time where those foundations are being laid. And if there are adverse childhood experiences of whether it's adversity and trauma, that can, what happens is it actually gets stored in the long-term memory part of the brain and it actually then becomes habitual ways of being. So if you think if the child has seen that somebody gets angry and this is how they express anger, unless they're taught differently, because we can rewire brains, but unless we're taught differently, that's where they'll go back to. That's where they'll go, oh, well, this is what anger looks like because that's what anger looked like in my home. So if somebody's punched a wall or hurt somebody or screamed in rage, that's what they'll often do. And I've, as a teacher and a consultant, I've seen that at schools, I've seen it in our families. And we actually have to look at what are we modelling for our children because that's going to be what they have for the rest of their lives. Yes, I totally agree. You know, trauma affects how our brains develop um, and how we react to situations and def- definitely how much empathy we have or, or not at all. Do you think that trauma is not what happens to you but rather is a result of what happens inside of you and how you react and internalise responses to experiences? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it is, but as it is. So when I look at that, there are two parts to that because as adults, we can be consciously aware if we've gone through a traumatic situation, how do we process that? Like we can unpack that and we can go, okay, this may be what why I'm feeling this way or, or these are the sorts of things that's bringing up for me and we can do that self-work. As a child, and when you were saying it, we can be aware, children generally aren't aware. So what will happen is they're living possibly in an environment where there are traumatic events happening and mm-hmm. something they will often internalise it. And what's been shown is our memories, we will put things into our, and not that we're planting memories, but we'll remember things that may not always be an accurate reflection of exactly what happened. So Mm -hmm. particularly in traumatic situations. So children will remember things and possibly often take it on themselves. It must have been my fault. It it, like, and then they will internalise that and it will look and go, okay, how, how can we help children who have been through traumatic situations, what does that look like? Do they need to be involved in play therapy? Do they need to do art therapy to express what's possibly going on inside? So Mm -hmm. 
there's different ways that children can express and it may be that they're expressing the traumatic events through violence and, and through violent play yes. because that's what they've seen or that's they're just so angry that somebody hurt them or some uh, those sorts. So it, it's that sort of thing and understanding that they process trauma in a different way than we do and they need to be allowed the time, given the opportunity, I guess, so allowed the time and the safe space to do that in. And that, that's exactly it. All children want is to be heard, to be loved, to be seen and just accepted for who they are. Um, and in many cases, that isn't the case. So, you know, do you think that the responses to trauma from childhood isn't our true selves, rather that they are learnt behaviours and survival instincts? Is that what you were just saying before? I would suggest that that's quite possibly correct in that um how we because we all survive and children children will adapt to environments so we may actually have behaviors that don't that aren't as beneficial for us uh, but until we're adults we can't see that because these are the behaviors that we actually had to learn to survive so to give you an example um, we call it living above the red line. So above the red line, cortisol and adrenaline are pumping through the body all the time. And what you'll often see is children who've lived in traumatic situations, who've lived with domestic violence, who've lived with abuse, they'll often be hypervigilant. And what I mean by that is that they're constantly looking around. So that if they hear a noise at the door, they'll look at the door really quickly or they'll be their eyes will be darting. They'll be on alert all the time. That is not good for your body, for a little person's body, because what it is is cortisol and adrenaline consistently pumping through because they're worried and they're thinking, what's going to happen? Where's the next threat coming from? What am I going to do? How can I escape? So all of these thoughts, they may not be articulating them, but they're going on in their head. And that's not a healthy behaviour, but that's what they've learned to deal with the situation they've lived in. And they've learned that I need to be constantly on guard because I don't know where the next thing's coming from. So when you're asking the, about the patterns of behaviour, I believe that the patterns of behaviour they form, they've kept them alive. That's how they've survived. And they may not always be the most functional or healthy patterns of behaviour, but they will inform the rest of their lives because that's what they did there. Unless they then do work on themselves and go, you know what, I don't need to be that way anymore because I'm not in that relationship or I'm not in that environment. Mm, it's, that's really interesting. And I guess it's then, you know, if we sort of then sort of zoom out from that, from, you know, looking, you know, child's um, life and then, you know, who they become when they're older as an adult, it's not what is wrong with people. It's what's happened to people once again. So th these things um, can be stopped and, you know, I guess another thing and another level to this, our social structure is really based on normalising narcissistic behaviours these days. And it's all driven by so much unconscious dynamics and I guess sort of cultural manifestation now with social media and all of the things that we know and we've inherited um, so much this. But in turn, of course, our children are also inheriting this cultural manifestation of narcissism. Um, and narcissistic behaviours thrive, as we know, on control and manipulation and abuse. And abuse takes all different forms. It doesn't have to be physical. It definitely can be mental. Um, and we could that's another whole conversation for another day. But, I mean, how do you personally think that we can make a start on freeing ourselves from this cycle and manifesting real change to a more positive future? I mean, this is a paradigm shift, I, I know, but just 
I just wanted to address this on this particular topic because I think narcissism and abuse go hand in hand. It is, and it is a paradigm shift. And it's looking at how do we as role models, as parents, as carers, as aunts, uncles, godparents, extended family, the village that surrounds our children, what are we modelling for them? Because if we are modelling narcissistic behaviour or if we and and I'm not saying that we can completely ameliorate or completely take away what society is becoming, but what we can do is temper it. So what we can do is say in our house or model what happens in our household. In our household, this is how we behave towards each other. And it may not be so much articulated until when they get older, or it can be. So and as I said at the beginning, I firmly believe that stopping violence, stopping abuse, stopping domestic violence, it starts when kids are really young. We can start with stopping violence in an early childhood. And I'm not saying that children are violent. What I am saying is what are they seeing? What are we role modelling for them? What are we allowing them to watch, whether it be on our iPads, on our phones? What is it that they are picking up? What? How do we speak to other people? How do we interact with other people? How do we model things at home? And it's that sort of stuff. Do we, when we're at the football, do we go, do we call out, ah, don't be such a girl? Well, look, no, it, it, that's not okay because what's that saying about girls? What's that saying about, oh, come on, suck it up, be a man. The men don't do that. You know, call it out. It's not okay when in, in society often what we've been seeing is that we haven't called these things out. We've seen it and thought, oh, really, is, is that our place to say anything? Yes. Yes, it is because when you sit now, I'm not saying correct other parents or do those sorts of things. What I am saying is, though, have that conversation. If you see somebody saying something or excusing violent behaviour or excusing abusive behaviour, we need to say, hey, that's not okay. No, it's not okay that he texts you 20 times in an hour. No, that's not okay, whether that be with our friend to say, so teaching our, if you're having a teenage young lady and she says, oh, my friend's being texted like 20 times an hour, whoa, isn't that a lot? And say, is that okay? And say to her, it's okay to tell her that that's not okay. It's not prying. It's just saying, hey, that's that's a bit extreme, isn't it? Yeah. Or getting people to question because ultimately um it's the, the excuses that we've had often in society is, oh, you see little boys running after and they push a little girl, oh, he must really like her because he's doing that. Like, no, if you really like somebody, it's about having emotional intelligence. If, you, if you're angry with somebody, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to feel all of the feelings we feel. But it's not okay to overlay that with behaviour that's not acceptable. Yes, and this narcissistic society, it's all about me. No, we as, as a human society, as, as all of the people on this little blue ball that's floating through space, we're going to have to start realising it's not just about us. We are a collective. And I think what has shown in the past year with COVID and everything else, there are things that are shaping our society that we have to respond to as a collective yeah. and not just about individuals. It, it, does that make sense? Absolutely. I think there's a real radical 
ideas that need to, to, to happen if we need and we need to make this shift to what society should actually look like. Um, and I mean, I think it's a, as we said earlier, there's a real paradigm shift that is, is needed. There's no quick fix. There's no Band-Aid. This is, um, you know, learnt behaviours from generation to generation. And at some point, the cycle has to stop. And I and think that's, I think that's, that's right. That is the key. It's learnt behaviours. It's learnt behaviours from generation to generation. Oh, that's what, no, we're putting a stop. It's drawing a line in the sand and saying no more. That's not going to happen. I've seen this happen with alcoholics. So not like family people from alcoholic families. They said it stops with me. This is not going to impact my family anymore. It is a conscious decision to say I am not going to behave in the way that I've seen my predecessors, my forefathers or parents behave. I choose to stop that now. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I choose to call it out. It is because, very- I, I, sorry, I know it's really, it's like, and I've seen this happen in my own family, a grandfather comes to hug a grandchild and you see them sort of cringe. And it's not that they're doing anything inappropriate, but that child doesn't want to be hugged in that way by that person. And we actually need to say, you know what, little Susie doesn't want to be hugged, Grandpa. And often, oh, don't be silly. And they ruffle the head. No, back off. Like, this is not about you. It's actually about protecting our children and acknowledging when they can't say it themselves that I they don't want that. And as their parent, as their aunt, as their uncle, as whoever it is can see that, calls it out and says that's not okay behaviour. Mm-hmm. Because if we allow our children to have to accept that behaviour, if we see it and we see their discomfort and we don't actually draw the line in the sand for them, they'll learn that I just have to accept being uncomfortable or I have to accept people doing that to me. Mm-hmm. The only way that we can, I, I believe, really make uh, long-lasting change is, is almost doing the daily work. We need to almost have this in our mindset every single day. It's not like we just adapt it the one scenario and only when family are around are those types of things. Um, you know, we are speaking quite broadly, I think, on, on abuse and, and, and violence um, in the sense of stopping that cycle. But I think it is something, you know, and that is in various forms and levels, of course. Um, but I think we just need to be able to have this mindset and do the daily work and have it at the back of our mind. If we really do want to make change I think it's something that it's not just a band-aid and it's not just let's just do it once and and then hope it's gonna it's there's a lot of work that is needed and like I said at the start you know the neural pathways are formed at 90 percent of a child's brain by the age of five so what have they been exposed to in those first five years that they're then as an adult only gonna as you said think that those behaviors are normal they have to unwire all of that stuff um to be able to to live and, and, and That's the key is that if they're exposed to those sorts of things when they're in early childhood, it can become habitual behaviour. But as you said, it actually takes, so for us to be role models, it takes daily work. It's about, it's not about just doing it once and then going, okay, they realise that. No, it's not okay to hit your sister or it's not okay to hit your brother because violence goes both ways. It's not just boys on girls or it it actually, violence and and behaviours that are unacceptable happen with children, happen with adults. 
what we need to look at is saying, how can we behave in more civilized ways? How can we behave in ways that help build healthy relationships? Mm-hmm. And what happens from a four-year-old to a 20-year-old and how can that behavior change? It can be changed because their behavior wasn't called out. So they became, whether it was bullying behavior or coercive control, I have seen a child as young as eight control their mother and they take her hand, make her physically, make her pick up their bag and walk away. Like, And so they are in control. And unless we call that behavior out, that behavior is going to get worse as that child grows up. But because the mum didn't have the skills or the support or the knowledge at the time, and it's not a judgment call on her, but it's just saying these are the things that unless we unpack them and help that parent put boundaries in place and say, no, that's not acceptable behaviour and it's not okay that you hurt me or that you swear at me or that you throw things at No, that's how what they've seen And if they're not called on, it turns into the behaviour at 20 that's just even, it's like putting a magnifying glass on it. Bingo. Yep. And it gets even worse. Yep. Yep, bingo. Hit the nail on the head. So what is one thing that could be considered quite innocent in childhood, then later um, I guess sort of a a fish only grows to the the size of the bowl that it's in. So, of course, as the child grows, those behaviours are going to be continually what they believe accepted and and that then they're normalised, which then as an adult can manifest into, I guess, domestic violence and those types of things because everything else is compounding from their childhood. So I wanted to address that, you know, we published your article titled Stopping Domestic Violence Starts in Early Childhood, which is everything that we've just been speaking about. Now, for someone who hasn't read the article yet, could you please tell us what the article is about and, of course, what inspired you to write it? What inspired me to write it has been most probably the past two years and particularly last year or the year before. Uh, I live in Queensland, Australia, and Hannah Clark and her three children, we lost Hannah and her three beautiful children because uh, her ex-partner, who she'd escaped from a domestically violent relationship, Hannah picked them up and was taking them to school. He got into the car and unfortunately he uh, threw gasoline all over them and there was a horrific accident and they've gone. He then killed himself. Um, My concern was that man and his (laughs) behaviour stemmed from somewhere and again I'm not judging him as in I'm not saying I know fully about him or what his background was what I can say though was I'm sure that he's either seen it somewhere or things weren't called out and the behavior it wasn't ever said to him that is unacceptable behavior And what we need to be starting to do is understanding what's going on for our little people. In early childhood, we've got to give them the skills and the tools of emotional intelligence to understand that it is okay to feel these emotions. It's okay to be angry, but it is not okay to be angry and hit somebody or to be angry and yell or to be abusive. No, this is not how things work. It's not how relationships work. Relation Often domestically violent relationships are quite controlling. They're psychologically controlling. There's coercive control. They're emotionally controlling. They're physically controlling. So there's a whole range of things. They're financially controlling. So 
Often it's about the need, again, narcissistic need to control your mind, your my piece of property. Where are they learning this from? And so what we need to look at is what are we saying to our children in early childhood? What are we saying as they grow up, whether they play sport, whether that how they interact with other kids? These behaviours will have been seen before. They don't just pop out at 20 and go, well, this is what I'm like. It's actually the behaviours and the patterns have been formed throughout, from early childhood throughout their teenage years into their young adult years. So what we actually need to do, and as a society, I know Australia has a campaign going at the moment that says, if you see it, don't be silent, break your silence, speak out, call it out. And that's what I'm saying to people is, one, as parents, what are we modelling? But two, what are we accepting in society? Are we accepting these things? And we have to stand up and take a good, long, hard look at ourselves and say, what is our treatment of women like? What does that look like when they're young? What does that look like when at, for boys, what's acceptable in their play? What? And I'm not saying, um, please, I'm not sweeping generalisations. This is not okay. What I'm saying is, this is where it comes from. And we can start shaping that by having different conversations with our kids. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so how does a child, do you think, develop from a, a kind four-year-old into someone who 20 years later is violent? It is the fact that these things are compounding. They've had that continued exposure. These, these behaviours have been normalised and accepted. Um, so in saying that, which is everything that we've just spoken about, how can how can we change this and what needs to happen now and in the future to stop that from happening? To break the cycle, we need to, one, recognise. So when I talk to people about breaking any habit or habitual thought pattern or things like that, you have to catch it and recognise that it's there. So one is critically recognise that that cycle is there, that it's happening in society, that kids are being exposed to this. Two, call it out and be willing to go, actually, we need to change. Make the decision as a family, as a community, that that's not what we want for our kids. And as a society, it's not what we want. And I think that in Australia, at least, has come to a point where we've realised we have a significant issue with how we treat women because we've seen these horrific cases of domestic violence. And what it's done is almost like it's shaken society as a whole and said, wake up, this is a problem. You have to do something different. There has to be action taken yep. and it's taken a hor- like horrific circumstances to do that, but hopefully it's been a wake-up call that we have to start when kids are younger. We have to start addressing this now and saying, what do respectful relationships look like? Because we can teach respect. Respect is a, a skill that can be taught. Respect, emotional intelligence, understanding what a healthy relationship looks like, all of these things can be taught. So a little person at four who was kind and caring, they may have gone to school or they may be watching things on TV or they may have experienced trauma. All of these things have impacted them and they've gone, oh, okay, so that's how you treat girls. If you like somebody, that's what you do because they've seen something or read something or those sorts of things. And that's when we have to go and check their behaviour. It's going, hey, that's not okay. Why did you do that? And and pulling it apart because all behaviour is a form of communication. So they're communicating something. Looking at that 
and pulling it apart and going, hey, tell me more. What what were you thinking there? What did you do? Now, this is not always for little people and you always use age-appropriate language and things and you can say, why did you bop your sister on the nose? Like, And you should go, oh, well, I didn't like what happened. Well, you may not like it, but you need to ask for the shovel or you've got to do these sorts of things. So it's at an age-appropriate level, but calling out the behaviour. What did you do that for? What? And no, that's not acceptable behaviour. In this family, not okay. So it, is what you're saying that they need to internalise their behaviours? Because my understanding of this, if a child doesn't have anyone to speak to about the trauma that they're experiencing or what they're seeing at home or what, wherever it is, wherever it is, the child doesn't have anyone to speak to about it. They disconnect from their emotions and they actually lose themselves in that process. And in losing themselves, they don't then internalize, um, I guess, their feelings in exactly what you were just saying then in a scenario of saying, well, do you understand that that scenario is wrong? If they haven't internalized their emotions because they've had to catch uh, cut, cut them off as, as a defense mechanism, means that they don't have a sense of empathy they don't have a sense of what it actually feels you know, if I say that, if I do that, that's how the other person is going to feel. Oh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think what you're describing is significant trauma. And so if we're looking at if this was significant and so what I've been, and I'll qualify, what we were talking about before is kids who are growing up in a loving, caring environment where the family can have those conversations, where they are in touch with their emotions or where a parent can actually say, you know what, you look, I can see on your face, you look like you might be angry or that the parent has a level of emotional intelligence as well. If a child is functioning in an environment where they've had to seal off their emotions or like they don't think about them or they they may internalise them so deep or bury it so far that they may even have um, sometimes there's different personalities and, and things like that. So there can be a whole range of mental health issues that go with that. But if they've not understood that, then we actually have to teach them. So, and what you can do in those situations, and again, this requires a significantly um, supportive therapeutic environment, most probably with psychologists and other mental health professionals around them to teach them that when these things happen, when you see a child's face like this, it means this. Or when you see a person's face or a body or these sorts of things, when you do these things. So it's actually unpacking for them and teaching them the skills that they may not have. So in saying that, if we are to fix these things, could you maybe give us some examples of things that people might say um, that inadvertently excuse disrespectful behaviour? Just to give us an indication. So to give you some examples, it may be that, uh, well, to, 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 I guess to start with disrespectful behaviour, it may be, oh, it, um, so a child comes home, a little girl comes home and says, oh, they've called me, this. oh, you know, he might like you. He's just, he's trying to say that he likes you. No, people don't express they like somebody or if that's the case, then that's not how you show you like somebody. Because it's almost like we're not, and I hate the term grooming, but we are conditioning our young ladies or conditioning people that this is the behaviour they have to accept. So if they go, oh, yep. hey, you this or that, no. Or if they ask to see an explicit photo on your phone, no. 
That's not what a healthy relationship is. So it's teaching our kids, even from when they're little and growing up through tweens, because all our tweens have these now. Oh, mom, my boyfriend, like, and then boyfriends and girlfriends, they want the No, that's not what healthy relationships are. So talking about role modeling healthy relationships and so you and your partner role modeling them in the home um and talking about saying oh look this is uh, on tv shows in movies being aware of what's going on i have a young person i'm working with at the moment who's 11 but they're actually i know they're playing grand theft auto 5 now grand theft auto 5 is not a very good well, it's never a good relationship role model or, or look at because you look at how women are treated. So, again, it's understanding where are our children getting the information from about how you treat women? Mm-hmm. Are they getting it from places that objectify women? Mm-hmm. Are they getting it from places that do that? Because if they are, then that's not a healthy role model either. So understanding where is all this information coming from and also then knowing um, how do we respect ourselves? Do we show ourselves self-respect and do we show that we respect ourselves? Because And do we encourage our young ladies, our young men to respect themselves? Mm-hmm. because that comes down to how are they, if they respect themselves as people, they will also respect and generally respect others. And it's that culture of respect. So if we were looking at that and it may be that you're having a conversation, even uh, when they come home from kindy, oh, I really like that person. Oh, that's lovely. And it might be they take a flower or something like that or things like that. But it may be that um, you know, if that's that, if you like a person, you can say, I like you. So often, again, it's not, it's about how we teach our children to use their words, to understand their emotions, because when we can label emotions, we understand them better and we can deal with them better. Yep. And it's then looking and going, how are we teaching our kids from a young age and throughout the thing? Yeah, it's okay that that person made you angry, but it's not okay that you called them a slut, a whore or anything else. Not acceptable behaviour. And mm-hmm. that's not going to be tolerated. Well, then how do we teach our kids to set those really clear limits and boundaries then? Good question. <laughs> because That's almost a million-dollar question because it's hard with this with the with technology with uh, society at the moment limits and boundaries often are blurred and it's hard for our children to set them but one of the things i guess i look at and i help tweens and teens and different things but also is understanding that as parents we can help set the boundaries so we set some boundaries but then we can help them set boundaries so if they come and ask us about things this is what they've asked me to do mum or they want me to go to this party how do you feel about that? And that's a question we can ask. So it's an open-ended question and we can, and hopefully they've got that open line of communication. I'm really not comfortable. Okay. Well, if you're not comfortable, that's, that's okay. It's good to know. Do you want me to help you set the boundary? Because at the beginning, they will need their help. And because peer pressure and wanting to be part of a peer group and wanting to do the things they want to do. Oh, they want me to smoke dope or they, I really don't want to do that. Okay. Well, I can help you set boundaries first. And then once you feel a little stronger, we can help you set boundaries as well. 
and mm-hmm. we can give you that and give them that language. But at first, we're most probably going to have to be the boundary setters for them. And in they can and say to them, look, you know, you can call me the old hag, like, oh, my old mother's an old hag. She said, I can't do that. And, you know, and because that allows them to pass the buck at the time, but it also got, lets them know that we've got their back. We understand that they don't want to do that. Or even, and I've used this before, I've said to kids I've worked with and to families, you know, have a code that if you text something and go, oh, oh, my mum, something's happened at home, I've got to go. So it gives them an out. It's always those sorts of things to save face because our teenagers, it's such a, it's insidious that they, everybody now wants to be seen to be liked and have the, all these things. And actually, you know what? Sometimes our kids know, don't want to be part of it, but don't know how to get out of it. So that's one of the ways. If that, does that make sense? Yep. As, as about giving them the tools to understand what they can do. Uh, and, yeah. And, yep. And what to use in, in different scenarios. But this is, this has been a huge conversation today. Um, if we were to, I guess, summarize key messages for any parent watching and listening or carer um how would you summarize the key messages that you would want anyone to walk away today and take with them respectful healthy relationships start with us in that how we interact with kids so again uh, respecting them if we want them to do something or if we're going to do something say you know what it's time to go to school you need to finish that in two minutes so we're showing respect Finish, finish up in two minutes and then we'll get ready because none of us like having things being cut off. If, if they switched our favourite TV show off, we'd be angry. But the respective, respectful relationships, healthy relationships start with what we're modelling. And that lays the foundation because if they see healthy, respectful relationships, that's what they'll understand and they'll begin to accept and, and want in their lives. The other one is if you see it, call it out. If you see disrespect, if you see somebody not understanding or using their behaviour to express emotions in inappropriate ways that hurt other people, call it out. Don't be afraid to say, hey, that's not okay. That's not how we do things in our family. That's not how we do things at our school that or our church or our group. This is not what happens because it's only when we call it out and we say this is okay to be pissed, okay to be angry, but that's not how you express it. We need to look at a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's not diminishing the emotion, but it's calling out the poor behaviour because unless we call that out, as you said so eloquently before, Rach, what's cute or what's acceptable now is not going to be okay when they reach 20. Yeah. And I guess every every journey, as they always say, as corny as it is, but starts with the first step. So as big as this work is that needs to be done, we have to start somewhere. So um, I really believe that we've we've added some value to to, to listeners and, and viewers today, and hopefully they've taken uh, you know multiple pieces of of, uh, of value from what we've shared. But if they do want to uh, reach out and they've got other questions, um, and or of course want a copy of your book, Kari, whereabouts can they find you? Uh, just at carriesutton.com and I, they will find me there and see my big smiling face. Wonderful. And we'll have all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for going there with me today and having this big uh, conversation. But um, thank you again and we'll have all those links in the show notes. Take care. 
Bye. I'm Rachel Monteleone and you've been listening to Kittypedia, the podcast. You can have full access to Kittypedia by visiting our website at kittypedia.com.au or following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're all here to help make the world a better place for our children and for generations to come. You can start today by helping us reach other parents by going to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to give my love to the kids. Bye.